Deceptions podcast. Hi, John Dixon here. We had so much extra tape from the interview with Makoto Fujimura, part of our recent episode, The Artist. Producer Kaylee, I think, cut about 25 minutes from the final episode. I mean, that happens every week, but 25 minutes is kind of pushing it. So I'd like to share with you the full interview. I spoke to Makoto via our online recording studio. I was in Sydney. He was in his Princeton art studio and I loved the chat. I hope you do too. Makoto, thank you so much for joining oh, us. A, a great pleasure. I have so many friends who revere you and have always said oh to me, oh, you must look into him and read him. Oh. And so I'm looking forward to um, surprising and delighting a few friends who just think what you're doing is... Uh, making something meaningful and profound for yeah. for everyone but also for those with a creative uh yeah. spirit to see that as as something actually connected mm -hmm. to to divine so anyway yeah. we should get on with the interview okay <laughs> sounds good uh, can i ask you um something i love to ask um artists generally is um is beauty real objective or is it all just in the eye of the beholder as the saying goes right the beauty to me is absolutely the source of all things in in, in that what i mean by that is uh god is not just a source of beauty god is beauty so fundamentally creation exists ontologically because of beauty <laughs> yeah so the answer is yes objective <laughs> <laughs> well we don't if if we even try to answer that question as something of our choice uh, something that we can determine objectively I, I don't think we're getting to the heart of it mm. I, I think just fundamentally we are drawn to beauty despite the fact that beauty seems to be gratuitous and excessive and not necessary at mm. times right mm. so so we wrestle with that and we try to justify on one hand beauty as something in a you know many people quote Dostoevsky's who's saying beauty will save the world well that's in the context of a question mark but nevertheless you know that that is something of a posed question in, in many circles today because beauty has been exiled and so forth but i you know i really come to believe you know any effort to define beauty misses the mark or anything that um tries to make beauty outside of the centrality of who we are in our existence um we tend to marginalize beauty um, as, as a result of that. So what do you make of that tradition in art that's that's really mm -hmm. quite modern? Um, I can't mm -hmm. think of it being a medieval or ancient thing that um, is almost a protest against beauty. It's mm -hmm. almost mm -hmm. a, a counter. Right. And that's connected with our alienation um, of 
contemporary society to the source of beauty, which, who, who is God. And, but also it's an alienation to oneself. Um, we're disconnected from the very source of how we connect with um, ourselves. So, so as a result, we sus- we are very suspicious of um, of beauty in general. Now, many artists who ha- protest against beauty are protesting against the Western notion of beauty, mm. which can be very much superficially you know, heavy laden with Western idealism. Mm. Um, but as as you may know, my definition has much to do with Japanese um, mm. way of understanding beauty, which is connected to sacrifice. So it's a very different way of looking at beauty. So can you give us that as a counterpoint to mm-hmm. the Western mm-hmm. idea of beauty? Sure. Um, beauty in, in Japan is connected to sacrifice and death. Um, beauty, literally, the Chinese ideogram used for beauty is um, comprised of two uh, Ch- uh, Chinese characters or ideograms. Uh, it's uh, sheep on top of a character for great. Uh, so Japanese aesthetic philosophers have um, traced this and, and said that in Japan, around 11th century, um, the idea of beauty, which came in from China, uh, which was uh, fat sheep, big sheep, <laughs> that is, you know, something to celebrate uh, in autumn festivals um, as, as a blessing, um, has um, become uh, more known, connected with sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice. So the great sheep is a sacrifice of uh, anything, nature, uh, or even ourselves. And so I note in my book, Silence and Beauty, that this idea of great sacrifice, great lamb uh, being sacrificed is connected with Christ and the redemptive, um, uh, what is hidden in Japanese culture is this always this idea that someone has to be sacrificed for our sakes. Mm. And yet Western art seems to be more fixated in its traditional form mm. with life and creation rather than sacrifice. But, Would that be accurate? Uh, perf- kind of a perfectionism, you know, mm. this immaculate understanding of uh, thinking about anything, uh, ex- including beauty, to be perfection of uh, image, you know, that's very Platonic, you know, uh, Greek idea. But we, you know, so so industrial uh, revolution has done a lot to this idea, which is, you know, when, whenever you improve upon the old, a new iPhone is, you know, considered to be perfect <laughs> for a moment, right? And, and then you have the next version, <laughs> which is um, as opposed to a Japanese notion, which is, you know, which can enter through something, um, through imperfection or brokenness or, mm. or sacrifice. Um, and, and to me, that, and that way of thinking is more accurate to the biblical notion of beauty and goodness. I've forgotten the name of that 
incredible mm -hmm. Japanese style mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of mending broken yeah. things. What, what's it called again and yeah. what's its significance? No, it's, called, it's called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi is this venerable art form that flowed out of tea tradition, high tea, uh, which is a, a very unique Japanese aesthetic, uh, actually a whole entire concept that Japanese culture is based on. Uh, if you hear of notion like wabi-sabi, it's based on this one tea master, Sanrikyu, in 16th century, who um, entered into this high tea ceremony, very powerful figure uh, in the history of Japan, uh, bringing in the idea of imperfection and poverty, uh, which is wabi, and rust, which is sabi, bringing in these elements that were considered to be something not necessary, um, uh, certainly in Western uh, sense. But kintsugi, uh, kin is gold and sugi is to mend, but it's also to uh, pass on to the next generation. And when an important tea vessel breaks because of many earthquakes that Japan has, um, uh, often the family of tea masters will hold on to the fragments for several generations and they will give it to uh, Japan urushi or Japan lacquer master to mend, but they don't fix it to restore it as if nothing's happened. They actually accentuate the fissures and brokenness and create instead a river of gold through it or lightning or a mountain, uh, you know, creating a landscape using gold uh, in, in, in a place of where the fracture or where the fissures uh, remain. So they're actually accentuating uh, the imperfections and they're making it more beautiful the resulting kintsugi bowl is far more valuable than the original, even uh, as, as valuable as the original may, may, may have been. Um, the, the, and to me, this is a great example of a new creation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when the Bible talks about uh, Jesus' post-resurrection appearance, Jesus appears as a human being, but also uh, as a wounded human being. Mm -hmm. um, and his nail marks are still there. Thomas, you know, um, is asks to touch it. He doesn't. He worships instead once he realizes that his question was turned into an invitation into new creation. And, and so by his wounds, we are healed. And um, we are brought into this understanding of new creation through the um, nail marks of Christ. Um, and that, that to me, is very much what Kintsugi can represent. It, it is such a striking art form. I find myself mesmerized when I, when I look at um, examples. Beautiful. So we, we need the East and the West. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, what is the purpose of art? If, if that's not a, you know, too simplistic a way of even thinking about it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, again, when we talk about purpose and utility, we kind of miss the mark uh, because God is the artist. God is beauty. Um, and therefore, art exists simply as a reflection of God's being. And so we don't have to justify it uh, as if it needs a purpose <laughs> because yep. it, it, it is it is at the heart of creation and and uh, by what I mean by that is actually it counters the Darwinian struggle that we find ourselves um, in, in the survival game uh, scarcity mindset 
zero sum game that we play. Um, and Jesus, you know, stands on the hill of Galilee, reminding us to consider the ladies of the field, uh, look at the birds of the air. And we, we ask, like, why? You know, we need to survive. Give us, you know, something practical and purposeful, you know. And, and yet Jesus says, no, the whole, whole creation is based on abundance. Remember the creation which was um, given to you as a gift. Uh, with with really no purpose other than its its own uh, existence as as uh, abundant beauty and uh, this heart of God uh, which is love and love will create generatively in in uh, in and creating some sometimes very um, what you one might call useless <laughs> things mm. um, you know uh, when we go on a date we we don't do oftentimes purpose-driven things. We, we do unnecessary things, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, to, for survival. Um, mm. and, and that shows that at the heart of love is this gratuitous beauty, abundance that, that is uh, given to us uh, as a gift. And we mm. want to give that to each other. And so I, I would think, you know, art belongs in that gift territory um, mm. that we are given uh, creation and ourselves, our lives as a gift from from the creator. Um, and we are simply to return that if we love anything, that means um, we are creating into the um, from the abundant mindset into new creation. It's a bit like at the relational level, um, true friendship, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, true absolutely. friendship um, isn't about utility. Yes. In fact, there's something you know. If you if you are using someone to some end, it's not friendship. It's a really it's a really strange thing. Yeah, and uh, C.S. Lewis says you know, videos the friendship um, is is the highest of of, of the loves, mm -hmm. and and I, I think that they, what you just noted is exactly uh, why um, it, mm -hmm. it is gratuitous. It is excessive. It is something that you know we we have as as counter to survival but oftentimes that very thing that excess of of creation is what saves us at the end yeah you um you make a lot of the concept of making now mm -hmm. at the very basic level you know obviously uh you can mm -hmm. understand how someone who paints something is making making a work of art but yes uh -huh. but you 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 have you have a you know a deeper sense of what it is to make and why right. making is such a human mm -hmm. activity can you talk me through mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. God is the uh, maker, obviously, and perhaps the only true artist in that sense. Uh, but we are created to be creative. We, we have been made as makers. And I, I make a point in my new book, Art Plus Faith, that, um, you know, unless we're making, we don't really know uh, anything. <laughs> Um, you know, information, knowledge, analytical knowledge can go so far and we can debate all day long about who's right and who's wrong. But, you know, we can argue over the recipe, um, but unless the omelet is made and you taste it and if it tastes good, then, then the recipe is correct, <laughs> right? And, and furthermore, it, it's not just the recipe, it's, it's how it's made um, and the wisdom that, uh, that the chef may have to make that uh, very simple omelet um, uh, can turn, 
turn into whether you know how to make an omelet or not. It depends on the actual omelet, um, not the recipe. Um, so I tend to think that we miss this point often in education and, and, and in our understanding of how we come to know things. And um, so I, I, I make a uh, um, point to I mention as an artist, I, I, I assume that is uh, common understanding, but but you know, even among among artists, um, this may, may not be something that is uh, spoken of as uh, something fundamental to us. And so, making uh, is a human endeavor um, that is uniquely given to humanity. And so, uh, a friend of mine who's a work and faith guru, he's a business person, uh, says um, he read my book, Art Plus Faith, uh, Theology of Making. And he said, this was the best book that I, ever, I have ever read on connection, integration between work, work and faith. Because mm. if you look at work as an uh, act of making, um, then, then we can see why integration is necessary and why, why loving what we do matters in the long run, uh, because we are creating something new into the world. Um, I, I have a friend here in Sydney who is a business consultant guru who would say exactly the same thing about that mm -hmm. book <laughs> so uh, oh, wow. yeah. he, he will en he will enjoy he will enjoy hearing this but um yeah. there, there's a question what about for those who aren't creatives mm -hmm. how can they participate in this what you say is a central human activity of making things we're all artists until third grade, right? <laughs> somebody, tells us, somebody tells us we're not, and we believe them. And we spend the rest of our lives looking for a way to really make something. <laughs> um, and we, we may be very successful in what we do, but, you know, what, we, um, what have we made is, is, is the ultimate question. And um, so all of us uh, are imaginative creatures, certainly, uh, if you may not make anything with your hands, we create uh, the future, for, certainly. We, we, can't, we can't imagine, uh, we can't utter a prayer without imagination of, you know, I, what I mean is sanctified imagination, not this fantasy. Um, but you know, imagination is fundamental to who we are as human beings. And, uh, you know, when Dr. King spoke on that fateful day, he, he, you know, he did not just say that there's injustice in the world and we have to correct it. He said, I have a dream. Hmm. And that requires for us to enter into this imaginative territory uh, with with those who are oppressed, uh, to walk with them, and and those things are just as much uh, work of making of uh, use of imagination for uh, to you know sanctified imagination toward common good that um, you know we so so all of us are in in that sense are walking together into um, a dream that we have. You've called your latest book, Art and Faith, uh, in an mm -hmm. interview that we saw, uh, your life's work. Uh, yes. That's a big call, um, given you've <laughs> done a lot of work. Um, so why do you say that? I feel, looking back in my life, and as I, as, as I was writing this um, book, I, I felt um, this 
sense that you know this is not just about art artist life you know or um an individual looking at theology or faith um this was actually a fundamental um, antidote to the kind of disintegration we are experiencing right now. And I wrote this book um, um, partly um, during the shutdown, and then it was released um, in, in the midst of it. And and many of the conversations I had I, it made me realize. And and when when you're a writer, you, you're very intuitive um, in how you approach it and you don't realize what you've done until later, <laughs> you know, somebody else tells you, uh, and, 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 and then you awaken to this reality that you tapped into something very deep in, in yourself, in your soul. And so I began to think that this, this, um, even though this is just one third of what I've written, um, on the subject, you know, I, I, I felt, uh, like this, this was my life work. That's something that I have been thinking about for a long time. And, and, and so, frankly, something that I have sensed as a child, um, even before knowing what faith, uh, is. So, uh, in, in that sense, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a revealment of who, who I, uh, am and, um, it's a discovery even for myself. Yeah. Can we talk just practically for a second about your mm -hmm. um, daily practices, you know, in the studio? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am here in my Princeton uh, studio. It's a whole spawn uh, turned into a studio, and I come here every morning. And I have a series of paintings that I started about two years ago based on the Psalms. Uh, it's 48 inch by 48 inch uh, canvas uh, that um, every month I take one Psalm and I work on it. So it's going to take me another decade to finish this <laughs> 150 Psalms. I, I didn't think about it, you know, when I, was, when I started it. Um, but, um, you know, that's how I start my day, meditating on Psalms. And uh, then, then I have commissions and um, I have projects that I, I want to complete. So I work on that. And, and then in between time, uh, because my the process of how, how I work is slow and layered. Um, there's a painting downstairs that it's probably going to take me two years to complete uh, with over 200 layers. Um, and and I, want it, I want it to be a slow process. And, and it doesn't have any purpose other than uh, me wanting to use this particular uh, as right pigment that um, I just got from my... Uh, my dear uh, pigment maker uh, in Japan, and um, so, so sometimes it's purposeful, uh, like a commission serving some uh, client or collector. Uh, most of the time, I uh, it's a meditative, contemplative practice uh, that I get to, um, I get to focus on here in my studio. Do you push through when you're not feeling the creative juices, or are you just so blessed that you are always <laughs> feeling creative? Yeah, I. There, there are times when you know when you're young, you you do wrestle with, you know, when is the work finished, and you know you want to say everything in a single piece, you know, <laughs> and then you you get to a point where you realize, you know, you it's best to stop a work when it's it's about to give birth to ten other paintings. So when it's most pregnant, you know, uh, with with 
with generative possibilities. And and then you work on you know these ten other paintings that that you you want to do. And so I I've never had an artist block uh, since I realized that in, in my twenties actually, uh, because I, I don't have time on this side of eternity to finish all the works that I want to do. Um, so uh, and and you know making art making anything is hard work. Um, and you do have to be very disciplined because you're bringing in something invisible on the side of eternity. So, uh, so you know, you, you have to have faith to uh, see beyond what is on canvas or what is on uh, on, on paper. And uh, and so there's perseverance in that sense of, of continuing to show up. Um, even even when you you know don't feel like it or when when you are in in a very dark place and um you don't even feel feel like getting out of bed let alone go to the studio but uh the you know activity uh, of regular um commitment to make has has actually saved me from depression because i i can go to my studio no matter what what I'm feeling, and then once your hands begin to work, you're locked in to the process of painting, which you know, which is also a discipline that I've earned over thirty years of practice. What do you think it is about engaging with art that is protective against the depression you just mentioned? I, I think you know, hand using somatic knowledge rather than uh, analytical. Uh, let's say, uh, you know, my my friend who's a clinical uh, psychotherapist um, says, you know, we learn things bottom lo- bottom up, right, left, um, and which means you know, when when we are born, we learn about the world through our touch and smell and taste, and that filters up. Uh, and our brain is uh, grows as a result of that um, the sensation, somatic knowledge, and then we are able to finally use words to describe what we have experienced. And then, you know, analytical language uh, begins to form, um, you know, sentences and so forth. And, you know, oftentimes we do the reverse in education and also in the church, you know, we listen to a sermon and try to make it activated in, in our lives uh, Monday through Friday, and we find it very hard. Um, so I think entering the world again through somatic means, but using your hands or creating and making, um, whether it be art or gardening or uh, you know cooking or uh, whatever we are doing, uh, child rearing or you know playing, uh, you know in, in uh, sports is another way I suppose. Um, can can relieve us of this difficult pushing that we have to do from left to right up down, uh, which is not natural to us. And uh, so many times I wonder, you know, if we will be so better uh, instead of sitting in classrooms and trying to take in information, if we, you know, ate dinner together and travel together uh, as Jesus did <laughs> to his disciples and um, the, and how that filters up into, of course, the highly rational, analytical, you know, 
propositional uh, ways that we, we we need eventually to systematize what, what we've learned. But um, you know, so so I, I think in that sense, our hands know better than hmm. what our minds can tell us, and so our mind may be. Uh, utterly de- depressed um, with the conditions of the world or certainly going through the pandemic and this current crisis with Ukraine, you know, you you have this burden uh, upon uh, all of us, um, uh, whether we are directly involved or not, or, you know, struggled through COVID or not, um, there's weight of uh, burden upon us. And, and yet when we are able to make something with our hands something uh, my friend actually says you know you create neurons new neurons are connecting um, and in trauma you, you neurons disconnect and get isolated and so we cannot think expansively um, and and when we make neurons those neurons reconnect so uh, that that's part of the heating that uh, I think we, we bring bring into the world uh, when we are making. It's fascinating you say all that because just yesterday someone sent me um, uh, a book about trauma, uh, trauma recovery, mm-hmm. and it's called mm-hmm. The Body Keeps the Score yes. Uh, yes. by Bessel van der... Yeah, yeah, um, van der Kolk. And um, <clears throat> it, it, it would say the same thing, right? It, mm-hmm. That actually trauma... Uh, can affect the body and and therefore bodily mm-hmm. practices can uh, bring bring healing to the mind um, yes. yes it's it's yeah. um it, it sounds to me um, how do I put this it's it's a return this this insight is really just a return to a biblical way of thinking about the human person as opposed to our platonic mm-hmm. you mentioned platonic thinking earlier right that you know we can yes. all we can just do it in the mind and good old aristotle yeah. certainly plato would have would have thought no it's all in the mind and the body is you know the body is just sort of leftovers um, right but right. the but the biblical idea is far more no you you are a body mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the body mm-hmm. is not just you don't just have a body mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. a as an ex, you know a, an extra and one day you'll get rid of it mm-hmm. you are a body you mm-hmm. you experience and, the, and the body of yeah, body of Christ is connected through a feast, you yes. know. And Wright says, you know, God did not give us a lecture; He gave us a meal, mm, <laughs> um, yeah. and and that that's a that's a great way to understand theology. Um, and theology of making um, is based on this simple idea that through our bodies we come to know uh, things deeply and deeper. And uh, if God is inviting us to a cosmic feast, uh, indeed, um, we and we participate in that every service, every worship service, in some way, then what is what is uh, what is our body allowed to take in, in order in, in given that we are all traumatized in some sense? Um, how how do we the body that keeps the score? You know, how do we find healing? Uh, together in community, uh, those those are things that I, I think my book asks, um, and it's a very, as you noted, it's a very simple question. Mm. Um, of course, you still, you know, as a as a regular Christian, <laughs> have time for <laughs> reading the Bible 
and um, and praying. I mean, you you're not such such an artist that you don't like words as well. Is that right? <laughs> well, word, word is art, right? I mean, it is. The, if 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 we understand that God is the artist, and I'm not talking about something outside, you know, of um, essence of and 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 something that is superficial or cosmetic. I'm talking about art that is fundamental to the uh, the creator um and that that source of uh, all wisdom and beauty is what rejuvenates us uh, what, what what our souls hunger for and and so when when we read the word of god um we are encountering a portal through which we we, we actually get to tap into that um, and God wants to sanctify our imagination so uh, we can be given wings. Uh, you know, not as C.S. Lewis uh, notes, you know, we're not horses that are trained to jump higher and higher of, of uh, hurdles of moralism. We are creatures with wings, um, and we have to exercise our wings and imagination and faith in order to fly into the new creation. Um, and so word of god prayer um is is fundamentally an act of training ourselves to um use these um uh, the you know parts of us that are growing um and many times when you first try to do this you you land very awkwardly many times and um you know it, it's part of i think uh, discipline but also communal you know the church journey is to grow our wings together um, and 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 oftentimes that can only happen if we are honest and vulnerable to each other and uh, as artists are you know mm -hmm. to be able to look at the world uh, full of fractures and pain and 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 say yeah I, you know this day I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to create something new into the world and if we can do that together um that 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 will be such a powerful statement uh in in light of what we are experiencing to today do you mind if i ask you just to wind back a bit and tell us how <laughs> you came to have christian faith um hmm. i mean i always find it curious for yeah. anyone but but i but but there aren't many japanese christians as it turns out i mean japan is one right. of the most Christianized right. country. So do you mind telling me? Yeah. So um, I call my conversion inversion um, because I think from very uh, early on as, as a child, uh, loving to make things, you know, make art, um, I felt the Spirit's presence in my, my life. I didn't know what to call that. And um, in, in college, I studied Western literature and American literature as much as I studied all, all other all sorts of things uh, in the liberal arts tradition. But uh, I came to understand that you know you cannot understand Milton or Shakespeare or William Blake with, without understanding the Bible. So I began to read the Bible that way and i encountered some of the psalms uh such as psalm 139 and and mm -hmm. I, I was just arrested with the words i didn't know what it 
meant for my life, but that was a seed that grew later on when I was actually back in Japan as a national scholar studying 17th century art, encountering um, that, you know, and, and then making art using the same materials, uh, contemporary works. Um, and and I, I came to realize that um, it all made sense. The Gospels made sense to me um, as, as a way to attach or connect what I was experiencing uh, as a young person making art um, and the sense of this energy that I felt or surge that I felt um, and that experience and the voice of Christ matched perfectly. Now, I didn't know then that um, I my ancestors on my mother's side were um, many of them Christian leaders. <laughs> I, I, it turns out that I had a great uncle who was a Presbyterian evangelist <laughs> in wow. southern Japan. <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, I realize now that it was their prayers that yes. called yes. me back to Japan to, uh, you know, to understand Christianity and Christ's voice that way. And I ended up writing a book, Silence and Beauty, based on the, you know 250 years of persecution of Japanese Christians um, that Shusakendo wrote about in the book Silence, mm. and really just dramatic experience and and um, in in many ways. Um, but but at the same time, I realize now that it was my ancestors' faith that allowed me to see. This connection um, to the past as well, and as as my mother told me these stories, and then she passed away uh, three years ago. I I'm only now realizing how much of the stories passed on passed down to me has been stories of faith, even though my mother struggled with her faith. Um, but it it is it is a legacy uh, given to me to steward, and um, so I I have been um, you know thinking about my journey um, kind of backwards, and and so yeah, inversion uh, is probably the correct way of uh, talking about my uh, faith journey. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I want to finish by. Um talking about something that that might be helpful for listeners who who don't believe uh, mm-hmm. we, we have many mm-hmm. um, listeners yeah. to this show who just who sure. don't believe but they're, they're interested they're just not sure yeah. what to make of it all yeah. so yeah. can I ask you to speak you know to that person as it were about how yeah. how faith and art or art leading to faith can be relevant mm-hmm. to someone who doesn't yet believe or know what to make of it? What is the significance of this for them? I think we all had experience of encountering an artwork or music or uh, theater um, that spoke something about the mystery of our lives uh, in a way that didn't we didn't expect anybody to understand. It unlocked something deeply within us. And we, we, it could be a cinema or a movie. Uh, you're sitting there and all of a sudden something, something breaks open. And if you're not a religious person or maybe if you're, uh, you know, someone who 
have not had the experience of going to church or synagogue or mosque or uh, whatever that may be spiritual path, um, you, you wouldn't know what to do with that. Um, mm. I certainly didn't when, you know, I was reading William Blake and I I encountered these passages, which seemed so revelatory to me. And I didn't know now in Blake's case, he, he was talking about Christ on the cross. So it was kind of clear what he was talking about. But, but still, you know, poetry and art and music, um, arts have, have a way of untapping the mystery of our beings. So, uh, in, in that sense, we're all believers. <laughs> um, you know, we believe in the transcendent reality when we see a sunset. Um, what do we feel, right? When we see fireflies in, in the dark skies, um, just, just you know, skies full of them. Or um, I'm in Princeton here today, and these spring peepers, these little frogs, just came out today. And, you know, I went bounding into my wife's office and said, you know, people's out, you know, what, what makes us so joyful about the spring and, and the flowers and the birds? These are all common experiences, I think. And, and in that sense, we all believe in the idea that something can give us this experience of transcendence and hope and joy when, when, when frankly, uh, you know, we might be facing a situation which is very bleak. And, and so I, I, I have many friends who are not religious. Um, and, um, you know, my father, the, the great scientist, um, the, um, was certainly not. And yet, you know, we, we, got to talk about these things, uh, uh, the, the things that really matter to us, things that endure um, in certainly my memory or my parents or um, anybody that I loved. Um, you know, th- those are things that remain, um, you know, and, and so on our deathbeds, you know, we, we will not remain, uh, we will not know um, or, or really care about, you know, what's on our resumes or how many cars we have in our garage or uh, um, or even, I don't think, in in the sense of system of belief, um, I think we are all going to be um, longing for that music that deeply touches us, uh, that sense of beauty, um, gratuitous beauty that you know we didn't deserve, but came into our lives um, and we experienced it fully. And and those are things um, that is connected to a deeper love. And so I, I always explain faith um, this way. I, I say, you know, well, do you think that true love, pure love can exist? Um, and what do you think the chances of that, you know, experiencing that? And, and, you know, one might say 20%, you know, chance of uh, experiencing love. And, and I said, well, what if it was 10%? Would you still believe in that possibility? And, you know, pe- people uh, often, I ask this to students, the students will say, yes. What if it was 1%? Would you still, do, you know, go after it with all of your um, efforts and 
And they'll say yes, right? Hmm. What if it was 0.001%? Would you still go after that? And and the, if the answer is yes, that means we have faith in that process, at least. Uh, if not in the institution of the church or, or, or even nameable God, there is something out there that we want to go after with uh, all of our hearts, mind, and soul. And if that's the case, then that, that is as good of a definition of faith, a journey into that mystery. And, and the promise of the, the gospel is that the one who came from the other side is inviting us to, <laughs> to partake in this mystery, to, to, to you know, not, not just have an intellectual assent, but, but saying, you know, come, come sit down with me and have a meal. You know, um, travel with me, journey with me, go on an adventure. Um, and we may not have, you know, institutional faith of any kind, but we can certainly do that. <laughs> you know, just just believe that there, if if there's a point zero zero one percent possibility of pure love existing, and this person of Jesus who is pure love, I mean, look look at the words, read the words that he said. And you know, ask you know, ask yourself: Is this someone that I want to follow um, to discover what true love is? Then that's that's all we need at that point um, in terms of our faith journey, whatever you want to call that. Makoto, thank you so much for your time. What a wonderful <laughs> way to end. <laughs> God bless. Yeah. Undeceptions Podcast.